Welcome to Music in the Church, a podcast about thinking bigger in our faith, our ministries, and our churches. I'm Dr. Sarah Bariza, and I'm the Minister of Music at the First Congregational Church of St. Louis. Between my professional work and my personal faith, I've been in a lot of different churches, mainline and evangelical ones, Roman Catholic churches, Eastern Orthodox churches, and in all of these places, I've been amazed at how we Christians do ministry in such different ways. That's what this podcast is about, learning about different viewpoints through conversations with thoughtful people, from pastors and musicians to theologians and historians. The goal is not just to bring you what these folks think are the answers, but to learn about new and different questions, assumptions, and priorities. I hope this episode, and every episode, will help you approach your ministry and your faith thinking bigger. Folks who listened to Music in the Church last season will remember my friend and co-host Crawford Wiley. For season two, most episodes will feature an interview. I've interviewed a lot of people over the summer, and I can't wait to share these conversations with you. I'll be hosting all the interview episodes, like this one, but some episodes will still be conversations between Crawford and me, so he'll be back in a few weeks. Today's guest is Dr. Marissa Glinius Moore. She is an ethnomusicologist and a lecturer at Yale University. She's talking with us about global song. Global song here means Christian songs and hymns from beyond the Eurocentric canon that we often sing from in the U.S. During her doctoral work, she studied how global song is used in American churches, especially mainline Protestant ones, and she interviewed many music directors and church members in the process. On one hand, she found concerns over cultural appropriation and ethnotourism, and on the other, beliefs about hospitality and the meaning of the universal church. Marissa brings up many resources throughout our conversation, and you can find links to all of them in the show notes at musicandthechurch.com slash 24. Thank you so much for being on the Music in the Church podcast. I'm really excited to hear what you have to say and hear what kind of wisdom you have for our listeners. Let's start out by giving us the brief overview of your research and just the topic that you came to as a grad student. Sure. My dissertation research was on a repertoire that's known as Global Song, um, which is essentially a repertoire of non-Western Christian music that has become kind of codified by the way that it gets published in hymnals. So a really common example might be something like Sia Hamba, right? So this repertoire includes South African freedom songs, but it also includes things like alleluias that were written in Peru or hymns that were written in Taiwan. Basically, whatever music that is sung in churches in the United States, especially in mainline Protestant churches um, and some Catholic churches, of this music that was written outside of the United States, and particularly in these non-Western countries. So my research for my dissertation was basically to look at this repertoire, which now shows up in almost every single mainline hymnal that's available, and to look at how did that repertoire come to be? Why do we think of some things as global song and some things as not global song? Who are the Mm. kind of big players in thinking about how this repertoire has kind of come into the United States? How did we get access to it? And then because I'm an ethnomusicologist, which means that I I study people making music, um, one of my main focuses was not just on what the repertoire is, but how people use it in the church today. So in my dissertation, I did a lot of kind of interviews with song leaders, many of whom kind of thought of themselves really as song leaders of global song. It was a really intentional choice that they were using this music. And I asked them things like, What are the kinds of information you're looking for? How do you use this music most effectively in your worship services? 
And then in addition to those interviews, I did field work, uh, which meant that I spent a significant amount of time in two different communities, one in Dallas, um, a Methodist church in Dallas and an Episcopal church in San Francisco as a way to understand how practitioners, kind of everyday churchgoers, were thinking about this repertoire of global song and how they were thinking about it. And for me, what was really interesting was what came out of the research was that many people think of this music and singing this music as a way to understand the nature of global Christianity and kind of understand that their role is not as this dominant kind of America is the only thing that exists or Western Christianity is the only thing that exists, but it actually really worked to kind of decenter that idea and help people understand and see that there are all these different ways of worshiping all around the world and that singing this music was one way to kind of understand how broad the body of Christ really is. It seems like that's pointing towards a theology of what it means to be part of the universal church and not just like a local church. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, and the universal church in kind of a very broad sense. So we're thinking really ecumenically, right? We're thinking all, ki- all different cultures. Like all, different. all Christians in all places. Absolutely. And that manifests in the repertoire. We have things in this repertoire that come from Pentecostal communities. We have things that come from Catholic communities. And for many of the people that I worked with, who again are mostly mainline Protestant communities, that is just another way for them to think about how broad and expansive the body of Christ is. And by mainline Protestant, we should point out that mainline Protestants, for listeners who don't know, those churches are predominantly white. And there are absolutely exceptions. There are historically black Episcopal churches, for example. But by and large, mainline Protestant churches have a majority white population. Yes, absolutely. For the most part, these are churches that not at all exclusively, but do tend to lean liberally politically. Though again, there there are not only exceptions, there are obviously different examples of that, Mm -hmm. but especially the communities that are singing a lot of this global song music, many of them are um, more on at least the center or left-leaning political end of the spectrum, which I think also shapes their theology in a pretty significant way. How how so? I think uh, for a lot of people, um, so one of the biggest responses I got from people was something like through missionization. So through the act of Western missionaries going to places like Sub-Saharan Africa, we forced African people to sing our music. So mm-hmm. it's now time for us to sing their music. So there's this real kind of ethical and almost kind of anti-colonialist approach and these are not song leaders these are not academics who are speaking right these are practitioners everyday practitioners and by um, practitioners you mean like lay people, people i mean in the pews. absolutely people yeah. in the pews so lay people choir members um some lay leaders depending on the congregation but not necessarily church leaders or even music leaders so i think they really do think of this music as being somewhat political in a way and their use of the music as being somewhat political even if they're not explicitly saying it in those terms. One thing that people bring up when they are thinking about, and I I mean really broadly thinking about white people thinking about music written by people of color in the U.S., especially African-American music in the U.S. People talk about this in terms of like ethnotourism and cultural appropriation. And those are terms that are often used like really broadly and not necessarily in the context of the church. But I think there's a certain kind of parallel here. And that's something that you talk about in your research. I do. Yeah, everyone's least favorite word, cultural, or least favorite term, cultural appropriation. Um, Yeah, so it comes up a lot because, as you rightly say, 
these are communities of predominantly predominantly white communities who are singing music of the other broadly defined right mm -hmm. whether those are people of color and or marginalized people in the united states or they are people music of people kind of around the world from non-western places mm -hmm. so one of the things that really surprised me is especially in my interviews with song leaders, there was a very, very explicit uh, challenging of not appropriation as a framework, but more that there was a, a really explicit awareness of the pitfalls of what they were doing and how it could be construed as appropriation. I was like fairly surprised by this only because it was so consistent over so many interviews that people would say to me things like, I do not want this to feel like ethno-tourism. And when they say mm -hmm. ethno-tourism, what they one one interlocutor described it to me as a food court attitude to global song, which mm. I thought was kind of a great way to put it, right? So oh, we yeah. sprinkle in some non-Western stuff here and there. We'll throw in, you know, an African chorus here mm -hmm. because it's uplifting and it's, you know, we can clap or whatever. We can bring that in was, a little drum. Exactly. That's kind of the opposite of what they were they were hoping for. What are they hoping for then? So because they're so kind of, a lot of the song leaders that I spoke to are so aware of those pitfalls, there's this real intentional contextualization that happens whenever songs are brought into the church. Mm. So things, people do these in different ways, but one example might be, so let's say they're using uh, an Alleluia from Peru. That's the example that happens to be on top of my head because there's mm -hmm. one we always used to sing and that I've sung in a couple of churches before. It might go something like this, before the, it's being sung, the song leader might stand up and say, we're going to now sing an alleluia from our brothers and sisters in Christ from Peru. I was taught this song by this person at this particular place. They sing this to commemorate blah, 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 or to tell some, basically tell some kind of narrative about how the song is sung in a different context. And now we're going to sing it here. So basically there's this real kind of intentional contextualization of any song that is especially a global song. So that people, people in the pews aren't just saying, oh, this is such a nice little ditty from South Africa or whatever. They're thinking to themselves, oh, we're singing Freedom is Coming today, which is a South African freedom song. Mm -hmm. We're singing Freedom is Coming today because this was sung originally as an anthem during the apartheid movement to challenge the oppression of Black South Africans. We're now singing it today in that vein to have lay people thinking about how this music is used in other places and how that can shape the way that they think about it, even in the United States. Do you have instances where like people didn't frame it that way? And I'm thinking of just like every single time I've been called on to play Siahamba, I, I haven't encountered places where people introduced it necessarily. Absolutely. So it's funny you ask that because that's actually how I got to my project. Um, oh, really? It is. So I had... I'm a singer. I had a church job at the University of Church at Yale. It's kind of the ecumenical university church. It was like my singing gig. Um, and they did a lot of this global song. And I, I will say I grew up Greek Orthodox. So Protestant worship in general is still fairly new to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, really different. Very, very different. Um, <laughs> but I had sung at a university church in my undergraduate. And so I figured it would be similar. Um, and I kind of, I thought I knew what to expect. And at Yale, they did a lot of this global music, um, but without any contextualization, really just kind of throwing stuff in here and there. They always were very intentional about what they were choosing. I later found out, but as a choir member and as a, as a churchgoer, it felt very strange to me. I really felt like very uncomfortable. I didn't understand why we were singing all this music from all over the world when we were mostly just a bunch of white college and grad students 
it felt very strange to the point where I actually quit the job because wow. it made me so uncomfortable. And in, but I kept going at the time, my boyfriend, who's now my husband was still singing there. So we'd end up there on Sunday mornings because I wanted to go to church with, with him. And I kept thinking more about what was making me so uncomfortable. And I spoke with it, spoke with one of my faculty members about it. And she said, you know, if you want to write your paper on this topic for my course, I want you to go for it and just see what happens, you know, see what you can mm. find out. And, and I think a lot of uh, dissertation projects start that way. Yeah. Like one, yep. that one, was fine. Exactly. One kind of professor takes a, lets you kind of take a chance. And this was a course on Baroque travels. Like there was no reason I should have been writing. Oh, that's this. awesome. That's a good professor. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I kind of, I dug in, I did kind of a mini ethnography. So I interviewed a bunch of people in the choir. I interviewed the choir directors and the, and the church leaders and the folks who were instrumental in actually shaping the worship that now happens at Yale, who had left Yale, um, several years prior. And it turned out that no one outside of hymnology had actually written about global song. There's all this really great work by C. Michael Hahn, who just retired from Southern Methodist University on kind of the, this repertoire in particular, but he's a hymnologist. So he mm -hmm. really comes at it from a very particular kind of perspective, which is, yeah. this is music we should be including. Here is the history of this music. Here's everything you need to know about it. Um, and there was very little on, okay, well now what, right? Mm -hmm. What is the second gener generation as some of my interlocutors like to call themselves? What are they doing with this music now yeah. that it's been included? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so absolutely. I think you know, part of what was interesting about my research is a lot of the people I ended up speaking to were very much connected with the hymn society in the United States and Canada. And part of that is the, there's a lot of connection. So C. Michael Hahn, the scholar I just mentioned, is a fellow of the hymn society. Many of his students are very integral to the hymn society. And so the way that they think about global song and the way, and contextualization in the church is very much shaped by and very much shaped by people like John Bell, who also talks a lot about these kinds of issues. And so there is kind of this, almost this network of song leaders who think about this stuff in very critical and very kind of intense ways. And I, I mean, critical here and not like, oh, this is bad, but critical and as in thinking very carefully about what they're doing and why they're doing it the way they are. But I think as a result, if you're out of that network, and I've heard this from other, from other church musicians, if you're out of that network, what ends up happening is you come across a song in your hymnal, right? Let's yeah. see, you come across a song in your hymnal and you're just like, well, that looks pretty good, but I don't know anything about it. I don't know how to use it correctly. And most mm -hmm. of the time, either you use the stuff you've sung before, like Siahamba, or you never sing any of that music because it's mm -hmm. so much work to actually find the information you're looking for to be able to mm -hmm. do it in a way that doesn't feel like appropriation. Yeah, I'm thinking of like sometimes there's a like a one sentence or two sentence blurb at the bottom of a hymnal entry and mm -hmm. it's just like, you know, this a theological interpretation or like a brief little factoid about the piece. But like for me coming at this as a musicologist, there's nothing about musical style. It's like here it is presented in a four-part harmony or a melody with a written out accompaniment. And I'm, and I'm talking specifically about how these songs are presented in a hymnal and it's it's kind of like well i mean here's how i could play it on the organ uh it feels um disconnected from musical style and how music is actually encountered sonically absolutely and what you're pointing to is is, is a big issue so there are there are a couple issues here right one a lot of these songs were transcribed by someone at some point then 
probably arranged into four-part harmony by someone at some point. Mm -hmm. However, most of the information about that is completely opaque when you're looking at a hymnal. Yeah. Um, so that can be a big challenge for people who come to this music and say, I really want to do a song that, you know, let's say um, something happens in the world and you really want to do a song that kind of speaks to an event that just happened. So you find a song that's in, I don't know, Thai or something, right? If we're thinking mm -hmm. about the event that just happened where the, all the boys were saved, right? So I find a song that's in Thai. Okay. I see it's in four-part harmony and I might not know anything about Thai music, but I suspect that they probably don't have everything in four-part harmony. Or and probably they. not in equal, equal uh, temperament. Right. And so, and part of the problem is what ends up happening is people have to kind of rely on their own knowledge of global music genres, right? Mm -hmm. To say, yeah, that doesn't look quite right. But what that ends up doing in turn, and I write a little bit about this in my work, is what ends up happening then is you do have these hymns actually that were written by people from Thailand or, Tha you know, who wrote it in four-part Western harmony mm -hmm. intentionally. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. people in Thailand sing it that way. And that is what is most effective for them in worship. However, we see it and we think, oh no, someone must have arranged this. This can't be right. Mm, yeah. The system is opaque and you don't, you're looking at that little blurb in the hymnal and you don't know. Exactly. So it's a, and it's a really interesting problem because what ends up happening is the stuff that gets published in hymnals and song collections is the stuff that looks the most quote unquote non-Western, right? It's the stuff that looks like, oh, okay, this is a call and response song from Africa. Got it. Mm -hmm. Okay. That resonates with what I think I know about African music. That feels good to me, right? Mm -hmm. I can use that and feel good about it. Mm -hmm. What doesn't get published, right, is all of the different ways that that particular song has been arranged for electric keyboard and drum set, right? There's a great example, Reamo Leboga, which is a song that gets labeled in hymnals as being from Botswana. It's originally, I think it was originally notated by Ito Lo, who's um, kind of one of the, the big names in global song. He's a, a Taiwanese ethnomusicologist and composer. And it was notated at a World Council of Churches event. So this person, um, her first name is Daisy, and I will not be able to pronounce her last name correctly, but she went at the World Council of Churches event. She sang the song and taught it to the community that was there worshiping. Mm -hmm. And then Ito Lo did a transcription. So he just wrote down what he heard. And then that gets published, right? Mm -hmm. well, that gets published in different iterations of hymnals, sometimes it's labeled as Botswanan, right? Which is very confusing because mm -hmm. what does that actually mean? Yeah. And when you actually look up the song, like if you go on YouTube and you Google, you know, or you Google, you know, Re Amo Le Boga, you don't find exactly what you think you're going to find. So when you look at the transcription, it's this very complicated transcription that looks like it's 12-8 and, and in 3-4 at the same time. It's mm -hmm. kind of like hard to read, but it looks like it's going to be very slow. And so when I learned the song, um, I learned it as Re Amole Boga, Re Amole. So very, very slow. And I was not told what language it was in. There was, there was no language marker. Mm. When you look it up, the song is actually really popular kind of all over Southern Africa. Like many of these songs, they don't, they might have, they may have had an origin once, but there's no such thing as an origin for many of these songs, right? They're traveling constantly. And when you look it up, the most popular views on YouTube are examples where it's probably three times that fast with an electric keyboard syncopated in the background and a full drum set. 
And wow. they're kind of very amole boga, very amole boga. And it sounds completely different. Like yeah. completely, completely different. Yeah, one is a lullaby. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that speaks to the kind of assumptions that I think many church musicians feel like they're forced to make when they are faced with this notation because there's, it's really hard to be able to, every time you want to use something, to be able to do, you know, two or three hours of full research to be able to figure out how you want to mm. it into worship. You know, this is making me think of how, like back to, back to the beginning, when we were talking about um, white mainline Protestants typically wanting to say like, oh, well, we don't want to other people mm-hmm. all around the world. We want to be anti-colonious. We want to be anti-racist. And so we want to sing these songs of other Christians. And so if you're looking at, you know, you being a church musician, you're looking at music in the hymnal or looking online, it seems like in this instance that you just had right here, that the impulse is to say, well, I want to do something that looks like it's different and not something that looks like four-part Western could be played on an organ, piano, SATB choir kind of music. Correct. So like we want something that sounds different to show that we welcome something that is different. Is, is that kind of what's going yeah. on? It has yeah. to be different enough from like, quote unquote, us for us to say, well, like, oh yeah, we want to do that. Because like, and I'm thinking of like, you know, I'm, I'm getting to know a new hymnal um, at my new job at a UCC church. And I see like, you know, I'm playing through a hymn tune that, I, that I'm familiar with because it's like, say, a Lutheran Kral hymn tune or whatever. And I'm like, oh, the, the person who wrote the text is, is from uh, an Asian country. And oh, oh, that's interesting. But if, if I just heard it, I wouldn't register at all as like something different from like, you know, Martin Luther. Right. Well, and I think what you, what you've pointed out is something that's, I think, absolutely true. And okay, so I'll, I'll give another example from my research. There's a song called Jalo, spelled N-J-A-L-O. And I'll, I'll have link to, links to all of these in the show notes. Oh, great. Okay. And Jalo is a song that's written by Patrick, well, it's been brought by Patrick Mazzacanieri, who is again, like Ito Lowe, one of these kind of big names of the older generation of global song folks. He's from Zimbabwe. And he helped put together this collection of songs from Zimbabwe that was published here, I don't know, maybe like 10 years ago or so. This song is almost not found anywhere else. It's this kind of, it's in this little collection that's also called Jalo. And it's hard to find, but Patrick Mazzacanieri, when he comes and does workshops in the U.S., often teaches this song. And so people who are in this network that I've described know this song really well, and they often teach it to their congregations, even though it's not in any mainline hymnal. So when I was in Dallas doing my research, I was at a church called Arapahoe United Methodist Church, um, which at the time, the music director was Brian Hain, who is now the director for the Center of Congregational Song at the Hymn Society and is kind of, and studied with Michael Hahn and John Bell at different points. And so really had a very specific way of introducing music and worship. But this song, Jalo, is, it's exactly kind of what you describe in terms of it doesn't sound very other, if you want to think about it that way. It goes, mm-hmm. Jalo, 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 right? Mm-hmm. Very kind of, um, and the, the English words then are always we pray, always we give, always we bless. It becomes a song that is incredibly popular to Arapaho to the point where they actually structured the entire stewardship campaign around the framework of, pray, give, and bless. Wow. And they sang Jalo every week during the stewardship campaign as a way to kind of raise money and raise awareness. So this song became kind of completely incorporated into the identity of this church. 
Yeah. But one of the responses from some of the congregants who I interviewed said something like, yeah, it doesn't even feel like an African song anymore. Now it feels like this little light of mine, or it feels like a camp song. It's Mm -hmm. become too westernized, right? It's become too incorporated that now we don't even realize that it's other. And I think the response from someone like Brian Hayne or one of the kind of leaders in the global song movement would probably say that's exactly the point. Mm. And, you know, the point of bringing all of this music from all over the world into our spaces isn't to keep it at a distance, Mm -hmm. right? And to say, oh, look, I see you, other, with a capital O. Mm -hmm. I will let you dip your toe in here, but we'll still keep you at a distance. The point is to kind of sing this music so frequently that it stops feeling other, right? It stops being um, kind of marked in that way. And a lot of ways that they do that is, and I've written a little bit about this, is they focus on things like liturgical placement. You know, one way of responding to that is to say, if I know I need to put a gathering song or let's say a sending song into the service, rather than thinking to myself, I need a global song what can I slot in to the whole service? I'm looking at the entire thing of sending songs and including global songs within that repertoire and Mm -hmm. using the thing that is the most effective for that particular service. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And and that's a way of kind of de-otherizing, right? It's a way of saying we are not using this music because it is other, even if it might sound like it or not, right? Mm -hmm. We are using this music because it is part of the global body of Christ. Mm -hmm. And I think that has like, what a lot of song leaders kind of hope for in the long term. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is like going back to Siahamba. I'm most likely using that as the sending song on this coming Sunday because it relates to the sermon topic and the scripture readings. And I was like, oh, well, I guess that's what we're going to do because that's like right in line with everything. So it's like hearing you talk about like framing it in different ways. I'm not sure if I necessarily will because this is a pretty formal church where there isn't speaking around the singing. It just, the, the songs begin. But yeah, it's, it's that in that practice of just being, oh, I'm a church musician and I do things that relate to the readings and to the sermon. And this is the sending song that relates to the sermon. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the other thing that, so I've heard church musicians say who are in similar kinds of places where that would not be something you would ever be able to do is to, one of the things that they've found success in is to actually have five minutes before the service starts to say, oh. we're going to learn a new song today. It's from this place. Oh, cool. I'll tell you a little bit about it. We're going to sing it together. So when it occurs in the service, we can all sing it in a way that feels not even just less otherizing, but as you know, right? Anytime you bring in a new hymn, the first time is always going to be rough, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. um, and especially if you're bringing in something that's using a very different kind of musical scale or using different kinds of harmony or all these mm-hmm. kinds of things, that's going to be compounded even more, right? Mm-hmm. Um, And I think, you know, so being able to take five minutes and say, let's run through this and tell you why I chose it, I think automatically will help people really understand, like, why you're using the song and why it would actually mean something to them for them to sing that song. Mm. Another option that I've sometimes used is including a note in the bulletin or the order of worship. So you've finished your your doctorate this spring at Yale, and now you're looking into new areas. And one thing that you're working on is a connection between music and whiteness and racial justice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, my new project very much comes out of what I was doing in my dissertation research. Um, In one of my field sites when I was in San Francisco, 
the community I was working in is the kind of community that does a lot of music from all over the world. And it's kind of part of their identity that their music is incredibly diverse. The icons on the wall are incredibly diverse. This is St. Gregory Missa in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there wasn't a lot of kind of discussion about appropriation because for most people there, they were like, this is what we're about. We're about mm-hmm. doing things from all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's part of our identity as congregation, except when they sang uh, black sacred music and in particular um, arrangements of Negro spirituals. And I'll just say clear, just care um, for a second. The reason I use the term Negro spirituals is there actually is kind of, it's partially a res- uh, respect for where the history of the music comes from. A lot of people who are actually still alive, especially who are alive during kind of late reconstruction, early Jim Crow era, still kind of as still identify as Negro. And so it's a way to kind of respect the history of this music and the history of the people who actually think about this music as a part of their heritage. So just kind of a a disclaimer there, because I know for for some listeners, the term Negro spiritual might um, jar them a bit. But yeah, and so there was a, a real response of, are we allowed to sing this music? That didn't occur anywhere else. Oh, I was, so a response from like the congr- congregants at St. Gregory of Nyssa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. There was this very kind of visceral, um, unlike anything else, they could sing Freedom is Coming, which is also Black sacred music, though from South Africa, and not have the same response. So there was something about the African-American experience in particular that was something that they was like a barrier they felt like they couldn't cross. And this is a um, predominantly white congregation, yeah? Yes, yes. Um, at least, especially, so I was working mostly with the choir because they're the ones who were singing arrangements of the, uh, mm-hmm. for this particular part of the project and the choirs. Yeah. Almost completely white. And so there was something about kind of the discomfort around this more local moment of kind of injustice that really intrigued me. And as it turned out, and you know this, Sarah, because you were also at the, the hymn society meeting this past, uh, this past summer, yeah. that this is a, a conversation that's happening more broadly in mainland Protestant circles right now. I think especially in response to um, police brutality and especially in response to racial injustice in mm-hmm. this particular political moment, mm-hmm. which is how can we use music or is there a way to use music as a way to respond to the injustice that we're seeing, especially mm-hmm. in terms of uh, racial injustice. And not, not just can we, but we should, so how can we? Exactly. There is definitely a desire. And the question is, how do you do that in a white church? Like, what does that look like? And you might remember from the meeting, the hymn Society meeting, that the question was often posed to Black speakers, right? How do mm-hmm. I do this? Mm-hmm. And the response was essentially, what do you think? <laughs> no. no. Um, it was not, I think there's this kind of desire by, uh, and I think an understandable desire to be told, right, by a person of color, how do I, how do I be an ally? Like, how do I do this mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the response is basically figure it out. Oh my goodness. <laughs> this reminds me of um, trying to pin a priest down one time, an Orthodox priest, about like some like nitty gritty detail of the law. And he was like, love your neighbor. Like, come on, just love your neighbor. And, and that means different things in different contexts. Yeah. Like, just yeah. like t- totally flipping the question around. Like, well, h- how are you going to love your neighbor? Right. And you're like, but I want an answer. <laughs> yes. Um, Nail it down yeah. for me and my fundamentalist mentality. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I think part of what my new project is intended to do is to kind of look at the ways in which 
these communities that I've already been working with and I've been spending a lot of time with in kind of the, the broader uh, mainline Protestant kind of predominantly white communities, how are they trying to use music to address racial injustice? And what is that actually looking in, like in their congregation? And my interest as a scholar is very much to dig into the discomfort. I'm not that interested in kind of neatly tied up analyses of, oh, look how nice this is. It's so easy because it's not easy, right? And that's part of, it's part of my task as a scholar to be able to do work that is both honest with the people I'm working with about where their shortcomings must, might be, but mm-hmm. also using that as a way towards productive conversation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm, I just wrote this, uh, just wrote an article that will be coming out as part of a book about whiteness and voice in particular, and the ways in which assumptions about black voicing in particular mm-hmm. um, can get in the way of white people trying to sing Negro spirituals. Mm, right. Yeah. So assumptions about the inherent musical abilities of black people, right? Assumptions about timbre, right? Which for the most part have, have been completely debunked in terms of what we actually hear. And there's a lot of really, really interesting work that's writing about the ways in which we don't hear what we think we hear. So a really great example is the book, The Sonic Color Line, which just came out a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. that writes about the ways in which Black voice and Black sound in, as a broader thing have been basically systemically oppressed and systemically treated just in the way that Black people have. There are all these assumptions that get made about Black voicing, and that happens equally as much in the church as it does outside of it. And I think part of what's interesting in a church context for me is that it hinders this desire for justice, right? It hinders this kind of de-otherizing, right? It, because white vocalists get so hung up on not being able to quote unquote sound black, mm. right? And so that's part of where the new sort of project is going. Thank you so much for being on Music in the Church. It's been wonderful to talk with you. Thanks. It's been a really great experience for me as well. So I really appreciate it. Thanks to Dr. Marissa Glinius Moore for this conversation today. You can find links to the resources she mentions in the show notes for this episode at musicandthechurch.com slash 24. You can get in touch with us through the Music and the Church website, musicandthechurch.com, where you can also sign up for my monthly newsletter. And you can also email me at musicandthechurch at gmail.com. I'm Dr. Sarah Bariza, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Music and the Church.